every company shows you a hockey stick, a successful company, right? When things ended well, right? And you see this amazing hockey stick for years and then suddenly it went up, right? But if you zoom into that hockey stick really, really deep, we see tiny steps. It's not a smooth curve, it's tiny steps. And each step was followed with a long period of time where nothing happened. So when you're in the company and you're every hour refreshing your dashboards, see what happens, right? Maybe twice a day you're refreshing your dashboards. Every morning, you're nothing changes daily fast enough to see. Very few times. It seems like nothing's happening. Now, three days later, you're in a different place. But those three days are seem like five years in between. Looking back, you always see the hockey stick. But looking forward, you see a plateau. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. You know what's annoying? Can I actually tell you what I find annoying about some of the interviews that I heard you do? Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus, but when you do traditional media, any incumbent media, anyone that considers them part of the media, the questions are very, Noam, give me your take on, and then it's something controversial. Like it always is ending up being something where they're steering the horse I don't know, to like- That sells, what do you mean? That sells. Isn't that annoying for you though? Don't you feel like when you have a great story to tell, people invite you on to talk about- I actually look at it very differently. I look at it that everyone's got a great story to tell. Stories are cheap, right? To actually have done something is very hard. Execution is hard, right? Yeah. But the stories, everyone's got a story. And what usually happens is afterwards, everyone tells, everyone remembers history very selectively. If things ended well for you in the company, then it was all thanks to your brilliance, et cetera. And if it ended badly, it's because you had terrible investors, right? Yeah. It's like, there's always this, uh, and it's the business, you know, they need to get some kind of controversy. But also you think about the listeners, right? The listeners will go to listen because there is some hook, now, there's some shows people listen to every week, you know, whatever. I'm talking about more impress. Impress, why would you read an article if it's going to be complicated in details and all that? I understand why they do it. It's very annoying, though, because they steer that and you end up getting caught up in these, like, hyper-personal stories about people and stuff like that. If you're trying to give information for someone to learn, it doesn't really matter, right? But Yeah. Isn't it even more frustrating for someone like you who always speaks his mind? Like, you were not dissimilar in the sense that you strike me as someone that has a very hard time having a filter. You say it how it is. <laughs> you, you, you say it how it is. I think that becomes particularly tricky in any media environment when what you're more thinking about is what am I saying and what should I not, not say, say yeah. rather than just being yourself. Yeah, but you know, that, that that's life. Yeah. Um, it was much, much, much harder before I sold ways. Why? Because I was always a loose cannon. But it's one thing to be a loose cannon after you like made it and and it's fine. Whatever you say, nothing. I find it amazing that people try to speak so politically mm. in these things and they don't say anything then. So just shut up and go home. Like, well, if you're not going to say anything. And that's my point is you end up going on and doing these things and you're not saying you're not anything. not saying anything and you're trying to walk around the, the, the issue and, you know, you're trying to pretend. And, you know, I just one thing people always tell me, like uh, uh, when they read my posts or stuff or listen, is that. They learn a lot from it. Because I, I just 
tell it as, as it is. Like, I, I'm not trying to uh, create this story of myself as the hero that comes out. That's another aspect yeah. that usually people get, right? How the whole story is about them. Yeah. Everything was around. Anyway, you, humans you, are problematic. You know, one thing that I was pleasantly surprised by doing the work for this sit down with you, I read all your posts. I thought they were incredible. It seemed atypical to me for someone to put their opinions out so strongly. And I'll tell you why. I think a lot of people are afraid to put their opinions out because things change. And your experiences are so unique to you that there's so many counterexamples of people that are doing it differently that are just going to throw stones in glass houses. And I think that's a big reason why people don't just put themselves out there because sometimes those takes don't age well. I'll give you an example. One of your posts was living in San Francisco, living in the Bay Area, right? You don't live in the Bay Area anymore, you know? Your life has changed. Things have changed, you know? But that was one take. I still agree with it, by the way. The prem- I still agree with it, too. The like- premise of the post was any advantage that you can get as a startup, you should take because you're already basically destined to fail. So even 5% difference makes a meaningful Anything, difference. Right, right. Um, and by the way, I still believe that. You do. I think it's a shitty life. I mean, <laughs> it's an amazing life for a while. And I, I still recommend people to, to move if you're... You know, if you're a startup, it depends obviously what space you're in, but altogether, there's no place like the Bay. There really isn't. At the same time, it's not a coincidence that the Bay produces lots of products that regular people have no idea what they're talking about. Because the Bay is a, it's a self-contained ecosystem of the same type of people talking to each other all the time, going to parties together, going to Burning Man together, doing everything together, that you begin thinking this is the world. You begin thinking everyone's got an iPhone. Well, no, most phones in the world are Android, but everyone must have an iPhone because everyone you know has an iPhone, right? Everyone has a Mac. I remember when I moved to the Bay, I actually had a PC. And I remember sitting in a panel, opening up my PC, and there was no connector for a PC. And everyone looked at me like, what the hell's wrong with you not having a Mac? You know, it was like obvious. PCs are 80% of the market, you know? It's like, there's all this kind of stuff that happened in the Bay, but there is nothing. For startups, there's nothing like the Bay. Yeah. I was thinking we could maybe start with the story. You mentioned selling ways. You wrote a post on Post, your new company, describing the story of how you almost sold ways to Facebook instead of Google. Would you mind just telling that story? It's incredible. Sure. I think the most incredible thing is that we sat on it for 10 years, the story, and we never told it. except Why? Well, first of all, we had NDAs, but more than that, it was just, you know, it was a very difficult story because people thought I was leaking data. I was leaking information on the story as it was happening. And so it was very, very important for me not to, because I, I didn't, by the way, but still, and it doesn't matter. But actually, both Google and Facebook thought I, I was leaking the data, but I wasn't. Meaning and, when you were in the throes of the negotiations. the throes of negotiations, yeah. 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 Um, so it was funny, just in terms of, of a little background, in 2012... Apple Maps came out and was a disaster. And Tim Cook wrote an apology letter to the iPhone users. And he said, until we get our act together, why don't you try Microsoft, Google, Nokia, or Waze? And that was like, who the hell is Waze? Like in that level. And that was kind of our, our big coming out moment, you know, in the US where we kind of began going mainstream. Now, this was pretty early in mobile, right? We had 10 million actives, which was considered big at the time for mobile. And, you know, things were going really well at that, that point. And so we began looking forward and we had kind of two conclusions. One is we wrongfully thought that we needed a, what we called a big brother, 
right? We needed a distribution channel that we we're kind of tapping out on our, on our organic growth and we needed to be integrated deeper into something bigger than ourselves for growth for users. Same time, we obviously knew we were going to have to raise another round. We built and sold ways on $38 million altogether. But at the time, we were planning to raise $100 million on a 700 pre, which was a huge amount at the time, right? Those were the days when billions mattered and billions were big numbers, not like today. The question became, do we raise? What do we do? We began kind of sniffing around, around acquisitions. And so me and the founders sat down and we built a model. And we said, if we get an offer of over a billion dollars, we sell the company because it's a billion dollars. That was always the dream. A billion dollar company was what VCs kept pitching and what founders kept buying. If it was below 700, we'll raise the money and continue. And by the way, some of us wanted to continue and some wanted to sell. So we wanted to have kind of a model that we'd agree on. If it's between 700 to a billion, that was what we called the gray zone where it would depend who's buying the company because we have to go you know, spend four years working there. And that's an interesting point around acquisitions that that's the, really the point where the interests of the investors and the founders diverge. Right? Up to that point, everyone's aligned. Product does well, company does well. Company does well, raise more money. Raise more money, higher valuation, everyone's happy. At this point, it changes. The VCs or the investors want the best return for their LPs that they can get. You are going to have to go and work for four years at wherever that place is going to be. And your competition is going to be linked to you working there for four years. And, you know, that's life. And so you have other interests rather than just money. So we said, if it's in that zone, it would depend who's buying us. And just seeing how the world has changed, we took an example of Facebook that we said, for Facebook, we would sell at 700 because it was an amazing company at the time, whatever, like the evilness hadn't come out. We were all excited about Facebook, whatever. Microsoft would have to come on over a billion because Microsoft was evil. It was under Balmer. It was the terrible company that we, you know, whatever, that, that everybody was embarrassed to say they knew. And so it, it was kind of the, you know, see how the world has changed where today Microsoft really is the most amazing turnaround ever is what's happened with Microsoft versus Facebook that is not exactly an amazing place. So we had this kind of model and now we've been talking to everyone. So by the time we got into kind of this, into 2013, I'd already met uh, uh, Balmer and I'd met Zuckerberg and I'd met uh, top people at Google and, and not Larry and Sergey yet. Uh, and we were selling maps to Apple. So we, we were pretty deep in the ecosystem itself. And we started basically uh, trying to build a deeper relationship with the company. So with Amazon at the time was building its own phone. And so we worked kind of deep with their team to try and be the maps component. And then they just ghosted us suddenly. It's really, that's another story. But uh, we spent time with Microsoft, uh, who was an investor in Waze. Microsoft was in our B round, uh, which again, for some reason, nobody found out that we sold the company. But the real click happened with Facebook. And Facebook at the time was building its own phone as well. And they were afraid of being locked out of the, the Android ecosystem by Google and by Apple. And they wanted to own as much of the stack as they could. And they saw us as the real location maps stack. And there was a very strong fit product-wise between the companies. We're a social kind of community-driven company. <laughs> They're obviously a community social company. A lot of the way we thought about both software and, and, and everything w w clicked very well. And so we spent a lot of time together trying to figure out how things would work together on the product level. And we got really deep into what it would look like. But at the same time, we kept running into this problem of, well, what happens? We're going to make give you all this value and then Google's going to come and buy you. And that was the fear that Facebook always had. And just taking a step back, this was right after the Spotify launch in the U.S. And 
Spotify, you know, Facebook felt that they had made Spotify. Obviously, if you ask Spotify, they have a very different opinion. But from Facebook's perspective, they had made Spotify and did not extract any value from that transaction. They built this multi-billion dollar company and didn't get anything out of it. And that's a bit of the way that the Facebook thinks, or used to, th- I don't know now, but in those days, very much a kind of zero-sum game. Any dollar you have, I don't have. And their fear with us was, we'll funnel millions of users to you. You will become this multi-billion dollar company. Google will come. At the time, Google's resources were much bigger than Facebook's. This was after the Facebook IPO and after the stock had crashed and, you know, and, and everyone thought that Facebook was really in trouble. And so... You know, we're going through all this and, and they kept wanting a right of first refusal, a, a ROFR, so that basically uh, what a ROFR gives the right for the investor is to match any offer that comes along. The problem, of course, with the ROFR is that nobody wants to bid if you know that someone else has the right to take the deal with $1 more right, or whatever it is. And so we couldn't give them that. We went back and forth. And finally, to try to kind of get through this logjam, I said, what if we give you a ROFR only for Google? So... If Google bids, you can match it. But any other company, you don't have any, any rights to. And they agreed to that. That kind of solved the problem right, for both of us. In that sense, yeah, yes, we would have to give up ever being acquired by Google. So before we continued with this, I reached out to Google and I said, look, you know, we're about to sign an agreement with the company that you would consider a competitor in the Valley that will preclude us from ever doing any kind of business with you in the future. I said, look, I, I'm, I'm assuming, I, we assumed there was nothing ever to happen with Google. We saw them as our major competitor at the time. But I wanted to make sure we're not kind of missing each other in the night. Maybe they, have, they had the, all these plans and, you know, we'd miss each other or something. And to my surprise, I said, yeah, let, let's sit down and talk. And we had a, a really interesting meeting because it was the team from Google Maps led by, by Brian McClendon and uh, me and Ehud, for, uh, 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 who's our founder. And we got really deep into how they build their maps, how we build our maps, all the different components that each company has. And since we're both experts in what we're doing in the space, mm-hmm. we could really go deep into it and we really appreciate what the other team had done. At a certain point, you know, at the end, like after all this excitement and this love fest that was going on, you know, kind of look at each other and they say, look, we're very impressed with what you've done. You know, we spend a billion dollars a year, you spend $30 million a year, whatever, but we don't see like how it would fit in. It's a little bit competitive. And so we ended the meeting, walked out, and I turned to the corp dev guy, to David, and I said, um, okay, you know, I guess we heard uh, what was going on. He said, yeah, I guess, you know, that was it. Thank you. You know, that was it. And I go home. And that evening, he calls me back up. He says, hey, we didn't read the room correctly. We want to move forward. And so we started talking acquisitions, and I made it very clear that I'm looking for a billion dollars. Now, this was after the Instagram acquisition of a billion dollars. Again, those days, a billion dollars was like a huge amount, but I really meant it. And the impression I wrongfully got was that it's doable. And so we, we went to a really quick kind of due diligence process. And among other things, it, Larry really wanted to meet the team. So we flew out our team to, and we met with Larry and Sergey, and I went through the whole, what I would call the management blowjob and walked away feeling very happy with ourselves and expecting for, to get this term sheet. And David calls me up. He says, I'm, okay, I'm going to send you the term sheet. I said, Okay, so whoa, before I send it to you, I want to explain it. Because as soon as you get it, you're going to go to the number immediately. So he starts, you know, rattling off all the corporate dev stuff about the certain number. I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever, just send it. Sends it over. Of course, I go straight to the number. 450 million. I said, David, we said a billion. He said, I know you said a billion, but for 50, you know, isn't there any room between 450 and a billion that we can, is there a number? And... 
you know, I, I read this in my post. I, I done a negotiation class at, at, at Harvard uh, at law school. And what I remember the clearest from the thing, we spent a week doing all these simulations and theory and blah, blah, blah. And at the last five minutes of the class, the professor says, and you know, in spite of everything you've learned this whole week, at the end of the day, negotiations end up splitting it in the middle. And that really stuck in my mind because it always turns out that way. But the point is, if you're starting at 450 and you want to get to a billion, there is no way you can bridge that gap unless you had started at 2 billion and then you could end up at a billion. But I really wanted to end up at the billion. So I told David, look, I'm just not going to negotiate. We're, we're going to walk away. It's not, there's no chance this will happen. And yeah, I said goodbye and we walked away. Now, the reason I could walk away like that is because also we had a model between me and the founders that we had built. And so I didn't need to like consult with anyone. I didn't, obviously my board was furious. They were pissed. Of course. $450 million would have been a phenomenal exit on any, any level. But also what they said rightfully is, yeah, if you negotiate, you could get up to 700, let's say, which would be an amazing deal. And this is usually kind of the role I play. I go from hero to villain all the time. So I was on the villain side here of having walked away. Now this is, you know, had things turned out differently, I would be the arrogant CEO who blew up and Israeli CEOs are good at this, at blowing up a great deal and walking away from it and ending up with nothing. And history is written by the winners, right? There's 50, the odds of, of me going down as the villain here would have been very high. But I went back to Facebook and I said, look, we just got a term sheet from a large company in Silicon Valley that you would consider. And you know, if you're interested, let's talk. So the corp dev, the head of, of corp dev, I mean, called me up and said, and I really respect him for that. And I think it's a very smart strategy. He said, what's the number that you won't shop around? This is super important because everybody, you want a term sheet to shop it around, right? And I told him, a billion dollars, I won't shop it around. Two hours later, I get an email with a term sheet for a billion dollars, an exploding term sheet for three hours. I signed it on the spot, sent it back to him. And again, because we had this kind of agreement between us, I didn't reach out to anyone to, to consult on anything. Obviously, this time I was the hero, right? I'd moved agreement from the villain to the Between you and the founder. The founder, yeah. yeah. And obviously, the board was very excited with me at this point. But I made, well, I think one of the key mistakes I made was signing a 28-day standstill period for the negotiation. Their diligence. The diligence. Hmm. And that's a long time. And the reason, looking back, is that Facebook wanted to buy us, but there wasn't a business unit that was doing the acquisition. It was Mark deciding he wants to buy us, basically. And at the time, it wasn't clear who was buying us and why. They saw the due diligence period. I mean, this is how I, and I, I analyze it now looking back, right? As, as a period of time to kind of figure out what, what do you want to do with us? We looked at it as the deal's done. Now we're just have to prove that what we said is true up to now and we were doing due diligence, but it's not about the deal. It's about you know the, the details. And this created this gap in expectations as we went into the process. And it was a very significant gap. And because there wasn't a clear owner on the other side, I mean, imagine we just signed a billion dollar deal. We're all excited. What's the next step? I'll get back to you. Two days of radio silence. You know, you're as a founder, you're going crazy. <laughs> like, Whoa, what's going to yeah, happen, right? Yeah. And you don't know. And that I think was the biggest, if we synthesize the mistakes that happened on the deal, there wasn't a clear acquirer. There wasn't a really good chemistry hmm. and we had all this time. And because we had our expectations began diverging because there wasn't that strong personal connection and alignment in the deal. And so, you know, it's all different levels of things. One was not being clear 
who's the owner on their side, not having a clear process. What's going on? What's, what are we doing this week? Whatever. They finally sent a team of engineers to Israel. These were young, early 20s engineers who were like talking about all the latest buzzwords and technology and stuff. Our engineers were in their 40s, has been kind of been through a lot. And it didn't Kirsten, go well. It didn't go well. Let's put it that way. I'm trying to think about a polite way of putting it. It didn't go well at all where, where these kids are like, oh yeah, that's no problem. I could build that. You know, that, that's no, no big deal. And our engineers actually built it. We're like, no, that is a big deal. Mm. You know? And that's like the difference between what we had with Google. With Google, we met engineers kind of our age, our experience, who had built similar stuff and we could appreciate what we had each done and understand the complexities of, what, of it. Here, we're meeting with a bunch of kids who hadn't really built anything themselves, and we're telling us that everything we've done was bullshit, and this was easy, and this was this and that, and like, that was not our experience at all. And so we kept diverging. Now, this was the biggest deal. I mean, till today, I think it's the biggest consumer deal in Israel, but it was one of the biggest deals ever. And it was the deal that really changed Israel as a tech hub, because it moved Israel from being a back-end software company to being a front-end brand-building country. There was tremendous interest in what was going on, right? And now you can imagine there are accountants involved, lawyers involved, and, and, you know, and investors. And at a certain point, the news began leaking. And the news began leaking. Frankly, I still don't know who was leaking the news, but the, the leaks were right. <laughs> it's like, I, I would read the leaks and I'm like, F- like, this is true, right? Mm-hmm. And so that created another level of-, of What of, type of leaks? Hey, things aren't going as smooth as- No, no. We th- First of all, the fact that the transaction is going on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. If you didn't respond. And then the fact that transaction was 700 million or a billion or whatever. So it was in the range yeah. of where it was. And then the transaction was either Google or Facebook. And then there's this rumor that Apple was buying us. And they got, so say all, all these rumors were close enough to the deal yeah. that you knew it was coming yeah. from someone yeah, inside. Yeah. So we basically shrunk the circle of trust. We reached a point where it's only like four of us that were in the loop with our lawyers. And no one else was in the loop, not our investor, not anyone. We just couldn't keep these leaks. But obviously that kept getting worse and worse. And then, so as this is going on, I get a phone call from David, the corp dev guy from Google. He's like, what's all the stuff I'm reading in the papers? So I'm looking, I, I can't really talk to you. Oh, you can't talk to me? I said, yeah. This is she says, okay. So we hang up and a few hours later, I get a term sheet in the email from Google for $1.15 billion. Now this is a- a Unsolicited. Unsolicited. This is an unsolicited bid. The goal of this is to put you in a fiduciary bind, right? I have fiduciary duty to my investors to maximize the deal. I have signed a term sheet with Facebook and these two things conflict at this point, right? I have a deal here that's better than that deal, right? And if we had had a good personal relationship at the time, my gut is we would have smoothed it out. They would have raised their offer. We would have figured out together how to do it. But because things were going so poorly, obviously I immediately disclosed it to them. And Facebook just blew up. They were sure I'd leaked this strategically and that I was f***ing everyone over, et cetera. And again, this all goes back to that human interaction mm. that was missing. That personal relation that allows you to get through these hard times you know, when things happen. And so basically they got really pissed off, ran out the clock, 28 days ended. And when the 28 days ended, I signed the, the deal with the Google. And in eight days, we closed the transaction. And that's how we ended up going into Google. You know, looking back financially, this was the lowest point of Facebook stock ever. It was $25 a share. So this billion-dollar deal could have easily been worth, I don't know, $5 billion or $10 billion over the four years that went forward. Just the, the, their stock recovered dramatically. At the same time, I don't think I would have lasted four years there. 
And so I think Google was the right place for Waze on many, many different levels. And it kind of turned out that way. They gave us the independence. We grew the company, et cetera. First of all, what an incredible story. Thank you for sharing that. Like, absolutely jaw-dropping. Like, they should make a movie about that. And I'd wonder who you who would play you. That would be a Brad whole- Pitt. <laughs> uh, we can all dream. The deliberation that you just had in your head is Facebook or Google, what would have been better? Do you ever think about what if we didn't do anything? We had actually talked about this explicitly. And we believed that if we waited two years, we could double the deal. Now, we were wrong. If we had waited six months, we could have doubled the deal. Because we had no idea what the market was going to go crazy, you know, in 2014, 15, 16. Right. And afterwards, after we were part of Google, we got acquisition offers from anyone you can imagine, from Amazon to Uber to Lyft. There were many other places we could have gone. But at the same time, startups is a very personal thing. And some of us were really exhausted and tired of the stress and the ongoing 24-7 kind of work-life, forget this work-life balance crap, right? Yeah. I think we can all agree that's not the case, but everything together, it was really stressful. And so knowing that we could double the deal or agreeing that we could double the deal in 18 to 24 months, we still decided that it would be better to do it, again, if we got the billion dollars because of kind of the personal preferences of some of us. Yeah, it's interesting. I have heard many stories. There's examples on both sides, but... When companies sold GitHub, let's just take an example, okay? The business itself, the metrics are doing incredible. Timing obviously matters, and in hindsight, it looks obvious. Like right now, if you sold in 2021, 2022, you look pretty smart, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So timing matters on these things. But what I have seen is take timing away in the markets. A lot of the time when you're in these startups, it feels like the world is going upside down. And it just, there's so much turmoil, interpersonal turmoil between the team, between your families, the stress, the burden. It actually is less to do with is this the right thing for the business to sell based on the metrics that we're seeing and more emotional, like emotionally. Maybe the founders are on their last thread with their significant others or they've missed their kids growing up. It's, it's those types of things that I have seen generally as the spark to push. Do you agree with that? You know, at the end of the day, everything in life is personal. And we like to try to find data and models and different things to help us make decisions. But we've already made our decision the first three seconds in our gut. You know, we're still one generation away from the monkeys. We're, we're, we're instinctive animals and we have a very hard time. And, and so... You know, obviously when people tell the story looking back, everyone's a hero and everyone's strategic. But at the time, especially when it's your first acquisition uh, and your your first major acquisition uh, or something, you don't have any perspective on what's going on. Now, this was a great deal by all means. So I'm not trying in any way to belittle it, right? But if we'd optimize, if we had a chance of selling at 10 billion with a 90% certainty or 100% certainty at 1 billion, that's a tough call to make. Because there's a 10% chance you're going to end up with nothing. And when you think about how life-changing these kinds of things are, it's a very hard dilemma to be in. Really good corp dev managers know that and play on that. The really good corp dev From man- the acquirer. Acquirer. Yeah. Right? Well, it's also hard as the CEO, I imagine, to look into the whites of your team's eyes who have been grinding with you for five years. Five years is a long time. Grinding with you for five years, that's generational wealth for most of them. The incremental difference to them between one or two 
or five, relatively speaking, money's not going to matter for most people, you know? It's very difficult. Yes. There's also a big difference. I was living in the Bay, and most of the team was in Israel. And that's a 10-hour time zone difference, and it's a thousand-hour culture difference, you know? Mm. It's very, very different. So I was kind of, at the time, in the glory of, we're doing well, we're growing, everything's wonderful, everybody loves us, blah, blah, blah. The parties that you go to, everyone says, you know, oh, talking. Oh, wow. yeah, 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 use your yeah. app, here yeah. it is, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Yeah. While the guys in Israel were, the server's crashing, this isn't working, I can't hire the person, this person wants to leave. Like, it's a different level of stress. That was one of my mistakes, is not being able to connect. It's hard to explain when things are going well, right? You've got to kind of feel it. And I didn't deliver that feeling to the team in Israel, which might have uh, helped extend the runway or the the risk-taking appetite. But at the same time, again, it's a once in a lifetime kind of deal in that sense. So when you talk about delivering the feeling, I think it's really hard to understand what that means when you're not inside these companies. I go to portfolio companies and I give a talk And the first slide of my talk is a benchmark of companies that went from 1 million of ARR to 100, and that's the y-axis, and the x-axis is time, okay? And it just shows the top companies that you would think of, the octas of the world, kind of the, the companies. And it shows how long when they, you know, let's just consider 1 million product market fit, this is a loose framework, to 100. How long does it take? 100, you start thinking about maybe we go public, whatever. And when you look at these companies, seven, eight years, many of our portfolio companies are, Twilio is in that, in that, you know, seven, eight years, are dead on track for that, for best of breed, dead on track. But when you talk to the employees of the companies, and then I project the logo of this company, and they're maybe four years in and perfectly on trajectory. They've tripled, tripled, doubled. They do another double. Then they're two doubles away, maybe less. Everyone's eyes completely light up. It's like they had no idea. It's like before I walked into the room, everyone was thinking that they're failing. Exactly. You know, it's really funny. I like to talk about that in consumer apps, about hockey sticks. Every company shows you a hockey stick, a successful company, right? When things ended well, right? And you see this amazing hockey stick out for years and then suddenly it went up, right? But if you zoom into that hockey stick really, really deep, we see these tiny steps. It's not a smooth curve, it's tiny steps. And each step was followed with a long period of time where nothing happened. So when you're in the company and you're every hour refreshing your dashboards, see what happened, right? Maybe twice a day you're refreshing your dashboards. Every morning, you're nothing changes daily fast enough to see very few times. It seems like nothing's happening. Now, three days later, you're in a different place, but those three days are seem like five years in between. Looking back, you always see the hockey stick, but looking forward, you see a plateau. Mm. You see a plateau and you have no idea how you're gonna break the plateau because obviously you're doing everything you think, every idea you had, you're implementing, right? And so it's like, why is this growing? And it's very hard to understand that things take time, you know, and that we can't always explain why things work or don't work, right? And there's a huge component of luck and of just timing and of all kinds of things. At any given moment in a startup, the team feels like they're failing. And, you know, that's, we talk about the the the, the roller coaster of startups. It's really true. And it's a lot more fun going up than going down, mm-hmm. right? But you're constantly going like every day during the day within two meetings, one meeting is this 
roller coaster up and one meeting is this roller coaster down. Right? It's not a period of time. It's literally in the same day. How did you manage that on a personal level? When you would go home to your wife, she fed up with you and the roller coaster. Like, How did you learn to develop any sense of equilibrium through these times? So I never learned that. I don't know. Maybe maybe someday. <laughs> maybe it's around the corner and I'll learn. I, I never had equilibrium. I've always been a person of extremes. Like you feel both extremes viscerally. Viscerally. Too much. Even though logically I know that this is not the end of the world, that it, I feel like it's the end of the world yeah. all the time. Yeah. Uh, luckily, I, I, I have an amazing wife and she puts up with me and with my craziness. And she also slaps me around a bit when I get too far out of line. Yeah. But it really is, that's why I say everything is, is personal in that sense. It's extremely hard to be rational about your business and your company because it's people that you know that work with you and it's customers that you know that talk about you. And it's, it's like, it's so much you. It's, a, it's like a child in that sense. And yeah. I think that's, that's the best way of, of describing it is a child. You're not rational about your child, right? You love yeah. your child unconditionally. So it doesn't really, and, and this is kind of what happens, I think, in, in, in startups as well. When you were going back and forth between the Google and Facebook thing, how was it at home for you? Like, what was the personal? Do you remember going to your wife and being like, this is like, were you sleeping? You've created a framework with the founders. Now the ball is in your court. That's a very powerful yet isolating world. What were you thinking? What was going through your head at that point? Like, how was it at home? So it was a problem because a period of time, at the end of the day, we're talking about maybe two months right? Altogether, everything. We're out of that. There was kind of one month that was really intensive. So it's a small period of time and you're going through this fear. So I'll give an example. Day before we signed with Google. Okay. So this is eight days working around the clock, around different time zones. Hadn't slept for a week, right? We're about to sign the biggest deal in Israel's history, in our history, you know, blah, blah, blah. blah. And the lead on, on Google site calls me up and says, We've gotten information that you are leaking the deal. You are the leak and we can't trust you. And if we, we can't trust you, we're not going to do the deal. This is the day before we sign, right? We're already printing out versions to sign and copies and escrows. And, and that's really the, I think that feeling. It's from this, oh my God, we're about to sign this deal to it's blowing up and I'm going to be that shitty CEO who was full of himself and didn't take the first $450 million offer and ended up blowing the billion dollar offer, ended up with nothing. Yeah. Like, and then we spoke together, explained to them that then whatever they agreed. And then we did, we were back to signing. You know, it's like, that's all in a period of a few hours, yeah. right? That you go back and forth with these things. Yeah. But I don't want to sound in any way like I'm complaining. Oh, you know, it's terrible. No, I, I, I sold my company for a billion dollars. Poor can me. I, you know? Can I, um, part of the reason why I do this show is I get to talk to really successful people. And the problem with successful people, honestly, is that there is a stigma that they are not allowed to talk about hard things because it is in some way ungrateful that they lack gratitude. It's a taboo to talk about hard things when you've made it. And I think actually that's an incredible disservice to people who are trying to do this because they just think that the ball bounced your way. You know, they just think that you were God-given in this thing. So anyway, I appreciate no, but, you. Uh, so I, I have to follow up on that. This thing that really bothers me is that, you know, history is written by the winners. And again, most startups fail. And we hardly ever hear about the startups that fail, 
All right. And I've had my share of startups that failed. And believe me, you don't want to hear about them. No, but obviously you learn a lot more from failure than you do from success. But the problem is we hear about the success. There's a self-selection bias of these successful companies that makes it sound like successful founders are these like geniuses that saw everything, and everything fell into play and the perfect product market fit and everything went to the moon and, and hockey sticks and all that stuff. The reality is founders sleep like babies, right? They wake up every hour and cry. Right? And that's exactly what happens. No matter who tells the story, the reality is they were crying at night. Things were not working well. It did not go. They had no idea what to do tomorrow. They were going to come to the team the next day to explain why things weren't going, what we're going to do, and they have no idea what to say. Right? That's the reality of founders and of startups. But people forget all that when it ends, when it ends successfully. Suddenly, they only remember the good times. And the good times, you don't need to talk about the good times. There's this, like that, you need to talk about the bad times. And I try very hard in what I write and what I talk is to really talk about how hard it was. Because what really helped us, one of our, our A-Round investors was John Malloy from Blue Run Ventures. And, and he had been a A-Round investor or seed investor in PayPal. He could tell me stories about what it was like at PayPal at an equivalent time that we were in. And it was just as much as a mess mm -hmm. as we were. Right. And of course, today, if you ask, you know, Elon or, or anyone or Peter Thiel, whatever about, about a PayPal, it was all this beautiful plan and strategic and everyone, everyone was very smart. Right. But the reality is it was a mess. And the founders fought with each other and the turmoil and everything else and everything. Everything is a mess in, in startups. Every founder you talk to thinks their company is fucked up and all the others are perfect. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh my God, why are we so fucked up? Look at that company. That company is just as fucked up as yours. Mm -hmm. Like, don't even think for a minute. Humans are, are fucked up. So if you put a bunch of them together in a company, it's going to be a fuck up multiplier. Mm -hmm. You know, so we're always going to end up being, and every company is a mess. Every company is also a unique journey. And the things that happen are unique. And frankly, founders are unique people. Right? The impact of a founder in a company, is it's impossible to quantify it, right? But it does not mean that if you put the right founder in the right company, it's going to work. There's so many other things outside of your control that are happening and that need to happen correctly. And so much luck and timing and personal relations and you know, everything like that. And when we win, we tend to discount all of that. And we, we tend to overcompensate or over-remember how great we were. Yeah, I completely agree. I also think it's human nature. I think it's a protective mechanism that we have in our brains to, it's trauma. I mean, a lot of this stuff is trauma. And so your brain lets you forget some of the trauma because it's so painful, you know, just like childhood trauma. It, it's the it's same like thing. childbirth, right? I yeah. mean, Women have all kinds of chemical and biological mechanisms to forget the pain. Because if not, we would die out as a species. Totally. It's not rational to have a second child after you went through the first child. Totally. So the company was acquired for 1.3? 1.15. 1 1.15, right. And then there was about 100 employees Yeah. at the time. It's amazing. Like, the ratio is amazing. Especially up to that time, in most cases, and I think it's probably still true today, is that when... Companies have a successful exit. Very few of the, you know, rank and file engineers actually make significant money. Right? Usually, the investors may do very well. The founders, CEO, do very well, and then kind of the VP. The further down you go, I think in our case, it was life changing money for everyone. Yeah, and that was a really big part of it. That made us at least very proud of it. What did you do the day after the deal was signed? How good did you feel? Probably the worst day of my life. What do you mean? So it had been eight days without sleep. The worst day of your life? Worst day of my life. You know, find this ending, this crazy route. We had signed everything. I finally fell asleep. I obviously only slept for like four or five hours. 
I wake up and in my email are like 20 different emails from different HR functions at Google. Fill out this form, fill out that form, do your anti this training and do that training. Like it's such a shocking change from being the CEO of a company negotiating with Google, face whatever, to being an employee at Google who needs to do their anti-bribery training online class by the 31st of. You know, it's like so shocking. And to me, that was like the big understanding of what I had just done. You know, obviously it was a, it was a field day for the press and everything else, but we're going to have to spend four years with a tag. We never had like a corporate tag to open doors or whatever. Like we never had that, right? We always made fun of people that had that. And suddenly we were the ones with the corporate tag opening the doors. Yeah. By the way, it's something that, that I have found, except for having kids, which I think is the, to, at least for me, was the only thing that I, I think really changed me, like uh, really impacted me deeply. Everything else, when you're actually in the moment doing it, it doesn't feel like a Hollywood movie. Like whatever it is that you actually do, you're still you. You're not someone else. And it doesn't matter how big the thing is. You still got to deal with yourself. And so you can change the geography. You can change the company. You can change your profession. But you are still you. Yeah. That's why if you talk to any professional athlete, actor, anyone that suddenly came into a life-changing event, whether it was fame or money or something, they're more miserable after. They look back and they... I think regret not enjoying the climb more because they were so focused on the peak. I'd be careful with the word miserable. <laughs> yeah. I think money is not everything in life when you have it, right? And so it's a luxury to be able to say money's not everything in life. Yeah. And it's a luxury that few of us have. And when we do, we should remember how lucky we are to be able to say that. Because for most people in the world, money is everything in life, unfortunately. So I agree with that. My point is, the peak is never as satisfying as you think. And I think that's why you were really depressed. I think there's probably a lot to do with the HR emails that you got. But I think that all of a sudden, you woke up that day and it was another day. And now you have a Google email alias. And, and it's funny, a few months after our transaction was the WhatsApp transaction. $18 billion. Yeah. And we took it so personally and we suddenly felt like such losers that we sold the company for a billion dollars when they sold it for 18 billion, right? You know, and this is the thing, right? You're always, you can always find a reason to, uh, whatever you think is a peak, it's just like a plateau looking up at the next peak. There's never, you never actually make the top of the peak, whatever it is. I guess, except for Elon Musk, but anyone else, right? There's always another peak to climb. Yeah, I totally agree. You didn't start as the founder. When did you join the company? So Waze began as a kind of open source project by Ehud Chabtai on his balcony in Tel Aviv, which is the kind of the Israeli version of a garage. In 2008, March 2008, him and, and Amir and Uri got together and raised money and started the company as Waze. Mm. So during the A-Round docs, the agreement was that they're going to bring on an external CEO. And this never works. But that was the agreement. And I, at the time, was shutting down Intercast, which was the traditional failed startup that I ran, one of the most traumatic experiences of my life, which I learned the most. And the person who was running engineering for me was a good friend of Amir's, who was one of the founders of Waze. So we kept hearing about each other's stories along the way. Oh, they raised money. They didn't raise money. They still did it. Like, you know, all these kind of dynamics through this joint friend, right? 
And when we finally shut down the company, he said, listen, you got to talk to Amir. They're looking for a CEO or whatever. And I was like, look, I'm too traumatized to do anything. And I, you know, I need to go to, to, to India to pray in a Buddhist uh, <laughs> monastery or something. I don't know what I'm going to do. But he got us together and we hit it off well. And we spent a tremendous amount of time together, just me and the founders. And we only went to the investors once we had to kind of work things out. And one of the things that, that Amir and Uri had said is, and, and Ud is that, they want me to feel like a founder and they want me to act like a founder. They want me to treat me like a founder that I'll treat them, you know, like we'll be in that sense as if we had been founders from day one. And I think that that actually happened and was one of the unique things about why things worked out for us is because I was not hired by the investors. Usually what happens, you bring out an external CEO, it's the investors hire them. And when the investors hire them, that CEO's alliance, at the end of the day, his allegiance is to the investors. And so there's a lack of trust with the founders. Because this was the founder's decision and my decision before we went to the investors, it created a level of trust that was very different. I'm also a kind of an aggressive guy. And so very quickly, it was clear that I cared about the product and the users and the company much more than I cared about my relationship with the investors or, mm. or you know, anything else. And so, you know, it, it clicked really well. A lot of people contact me saying, hey, we need to get a new CEO. Can you explain to you how it worked at Waze? You know, you, and I always say, don't do it. It never works. We're a unique unicorn that succeeded in bringing an external CEO. The odds of this working are so low that I definitely do not recommend it for anyone. So Intercast was where you were coming from. Why do you have such a negative reflection of that experience? You were the CEO? I was the CEO. Okay. I f***ed up on multiple levels, ended up shutting down the company, burning other people's money, and f wasting people's time. Yeah. Still sticks with you. Still sticks with me. It was exceptionally bad because I joined the company for all the wrong reasons. And I ignored everything. What do you mean? Uh, it was complicated. I was part of a founding team of a different company that's actually pretty well known these days, but I felt it was wrong and I didn't want to continue with that team. And my first company that founded Delta 3, we had gone public very fast, so we never went the VC route. How fast? We founded the company in 2006, in 90, sorry, 1996, talking the first bubble, in 1996, and then we raised some angel money and then we had a US telecom company buy half of our company and invest in us, and then we went public in 99. So three years from founding, we went public. What'd you go public at? NASDAQ. I think we went out like 350 million. And again, this is 99, so that was a lot of money then. And I think our peak was a billion and a half dollars, which then was a lot of money. And were you running the company? I was running the company, I was 28, terrible mistake. You were 28? I was 28. It was the first bubble. Everyone was idiots. I was an idiot also. And so were yeah. my investors. And so were the bankers. Well, the bankers were idiots. They knew exactly what they were doing. They made money no matter what. They made what. money. They got their green shoe. They were very happy. They didn't give a shit what happened to the to anyone else, <laughs> which is like all the SPACs, right? Exactly. Uh, anyway, so <laughs> getting back how we started all this. So I wanted to join a VC-funded company, and I wanted to get out of the situation I was in. And that was the perspective with which I did due diligence on this company. And so I did due diligence with the perspective of, I want to take, I want to join this company. And when you do that, then you don't listen to the raw, you know, you listen to the signals that you want to listen to. Mm -hmm. Two months after joining the company, I realized that I made a terrible mistake. I just realized that for all the wrong reasons, but you know, you're already there. What are you going to do? Right? So you have to keep fighting. So I raised another round, went through the whole thing, but deep in my gut, I knew it was a mistake. And that's, I think what made it extra traumatic the whole time. I put up a good fight 
And that, luckily for us, 2008 happened and the market crashed and we couldn't raise another round. Everything died anyway. Everything died. So we had to, sh- so I, I shut it down and then joined Waze. And if you make a terrible mistake, it can lead you to the right place, is what I'm trying to say. How, um, when you were the CEO of this company at 28, did you feel like a fraud? Of course. Look, imposter syndrome, everyone has it all the time. And anybody says who doesn't have it is just lying. It's very simple. <laughs> you know, or is a narcissist, right? Or a psychopath. It's extremely hard. I think what you learn with experience of meeting lots of powerful people is that everyone is just as much as an idiot as you. It's like when you actually meet the people, not read about them in TechCrunch, but you actually meet them. You know, there are no superheroes. You know, everyone's just as smart and dumb as you. Everyone has the same issues as you. There's nothing special about anyone. Obviously, people have, you know, all kinds of different situations that, that help them. But until you see that, you have this feeling that everyone else are these superheroes and you're immortal, right? And you're immortal pretending, dressing up like a superhero. I completely agree. That's why I have so much respect for CEOs and founders because each company is unique. And you have no idea what's around the next turn. And your employees are counting on you to figure it out. (laughs) And so a lot of the times you're putting on a really brave face and then you're going home and trying to figure it out. When you're in the office, you project, there's an expectation to project a level of confidence. And deep down, I think that actually exacerbates the feeling because you have no idea. <laughs> so that's what, that, that's and what, don't, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was saying that, that, that's one of the things with me is that I am very, very transparent with everyone I work with all the time. Too much, probably. So I remember after we got acquired by Google, we did a TGIF and I spoke a, a, in front of everyone at Google about ways. And I remember kind of looking at the comments and the, the, that were going on, the memes. And one of the memes, someone said, corp speak bullshit level zero. <laughs> you know? And this is something that I find really amazing that a lot of people still speak this corp speak where it's not clear what they're saying. They say a lot of words without actually mean saying anything or get these emails that are like three pages long. And you read them, you don't understand what's going on. Like, why don't you just say what's going on? You know, we f***ed up. This didn't work out. Now we're doing something different. That's fine. Instead of saying, this was a wild success. I want to thank everyone for this great success. And so we're shutting down the product. Why? You can't hire smart people and treat them like idiots. Mm. You know? And in general, I, I think this issue of portraying what you think people want to hear is always a dangerous slope to go down. Yeah. What's interesting is even now, so you started a new company and, and we can talk about that, but- I actually think the feeling becomes even more pernicious once you're successful, in air quotes, because now there is an expectation, not just because you're the founder and CEO, but because you're a previous successful founder and CEO, that now you definitely have all the answers. And by the way, that expectations projected from venture capitalists, that expectations projected from from everybody, everybody, from your family, you know, your colleagues, your coworkers. So this is very interesting. I think most successful entrepreneurs do not go on to start another company. A big part is that fear. I mean, some of it is just that you made a lot of money. What you love to do is surfing. Now you're going around the world surfing. That's fine. But I think a lot of people don't do it. And myself, this is a big risk is because of that fear of I need to do something bigger and something better. And living something, up to the previous living success. Living up and, and, and exceeding it. And also the world changes, right? It's also this fear of, was it really luck? You know, if I fail here, maybe it was all luck. Maybe it's not me, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And it is luck, it's not you. 
I've watched some people that I know that have started companies after being successful. One of the problems is you know too much. You know what's going to go wrong. You know what the challenges are. And so you tend to overbuild and to overinvest and to overhire. And this is something I've been very, very worried about, about how do we keep things scrappy and simple for the stage that we're in, right? I think the biggest risk for a startup is a mismatch between the situation it's in and what it, where it thinks it is, right? And so you overspend or you underspend. And this is something we've been very, very careful on is retaining that early stage scrappiness and not getting caught up in, you know, corp speak. And it was very hard. It's, it still is hard kind of after, you know, running a 600 person company, you know, being part of Google, all this kind of stuff to suddenly be really early stage scrappy, not hiring anyone who's not an engineer, you know, like keeping the essence, the DNA of the company in what it should be. And not being the guy that says, oh, at Waze, we did this. Which I try very hard not to do. And of course I fail. Things that worked in a different time are not going to work now. The world changes. So like when we got started with Waze, the iPhone had to be jailbroken to put a navigation app on it because navigation apps were not allowed on, on the app store, right? It's like, it was a different world, right? And we can't, so just now we, we launched our iPhone app at, at Post. We, we lost our iPhone app. What is Post? So I'll tell you what I'm but I said we lost a few weeks ago. And so I went back into the, kind of the app store dashboards for the first time in seven years, right? And you see the difference. It's unbelievable. Like, and when we started out, you couldn't track downloads like through the app store. You'd lose your, your link completely. It's like all this kind of stuff that today is off the shelf. We had to invent. Now it's a problem. It means that I try to invent these things again, not knowing that they've already been invented, right? So, so what is post? Can actually before you get there, can I pile onto that? Of course. I had uh, Claire Hughes Johnson on. She was the COO of Stripe. Joined probably hundred employees, and she was relaying a story to me about how because Patrick and John are brilliant, right? You know, engineering led founders as they were scaling, they had this tendency to want to just reinvent processes because they could, right? So as an example, their HR systems, you know, the their reviews, how they do OKRs, they wanted to just build these things from scratch. And she'd say, we don't have to do all this. You know, we don't have to over-engineer these things. We can just, this is not the core competency that we need to be doing. We can just take off the shelf stuff for now. If we need to improve it later, we can. But there's other things that we can focus on. Anyway, it reminded me of what you were saying. But that, that's strange because that's the tendency at Google. Right? Google, everything gets built in-house, which is one of the challenges at Google's internal systems is they get built in-house and so they're not best in breed. Yeah, I want to get to post, but the Google thing, I felt like you were a startup guy stuck in a big company there. Is that fair? Every day was, I'm either going to get fired or promoted. <laughs> and somehow it was the promoted route work. You were the CEO of Waze. So I, I came in as CEO of Waze. Waze kept it was very independent. We still ran on AWS. We, we you know had our own everything. And slowly over time, we began integrating more and more of the systems mm -hmm. and the processes and the people and all that. But- I had never worked in a large company before, you know, and I was shell-shocked by a lot of things I saw. I remember the first, I think it was just, I came in as like a senior director and then I got from, no, as a director and then I got promoted to VP. I don't remember exactly the process, but the point was the first VP meeting was Adrian Aoun, who had just sold his company to Google and a, a Tony Fadell, who just sold, sold to Google and myself. The three of us were the only ones asking questions, right? This, I have 160 VPs. Everyone would come, there'd be these like beautiful presentations. And then nobody would say that. We'd ask, well, 
why are we doing this? We well, asked like some basic questions and it got a little contentious, but you saw the DNA difference, right? Of the corporate kind of DNA versus the startup DNA of why are we doing this? And should we be doing this? And if we're doing this, you know, why is it, why didn't we ship it? And I, and I got a little vocal in my criticism of Google's apps. And so Larry asked me for the next meeting to present what I think about Google's, it, this was a time of Google's iOS apps were really bad. And what I think about Google's apps and what we need to do. What year was this around? 2014, I think. Okay, yeah. Right? So it was mm-hmm. just when Google was about to, ter- made, a, made a pretty big turnaround around iOS. But at the time, there were, I don't remember the exact number. We actually looked at how many people had checked in iOS code and it was like, the number was tiny. And we had iOS engineers using Android phones, like all kind of crazy shit that was going on. And anyway, so I gave, in my blunt and direct sense, I gave a 20-minute presentation that basically said, Google does not understand the mobile change, the products suck, and they need to be changed. And this was, I was sure I was gonna get fired. This was the final step, right? I finished my presentation and 160 VPs stand up and start clapping. Like the first time someone had come and put on the table what everybody knew, right? I wasn't saying anything everybody didn't know, but I was the only one willing to say it. And that's the point where I became kind of this hero this kind of folk hero, you know, within Google. And ask anyone who was a VP at that time will remember that meeting. Like, there's little chance they would forget it. And so I felt that, that, you know, everybody can complain, right? That's the easiest thing in the world. Like, you can look at any company you walk into, you can say it's a piece of shit because there's always reasons why you end up there, right? It's not that people are stupid. It's not they say, oh, how can we build a shitty product? Let's do one, two, three. No, there's constraints like everywhere. So I said, let's do something about it. And so I said, I'm going to go look a little bit into, into the growth side of the apps, et cetera. I discovered there was no centralized database of analytics at Google at the time. Nobody really knew how many active users there were. Nobody really knew the retention rates of like things that you as a startup were kind of obvious for you. No one knew. And every business unit or product area operated separately and with their own definitions, right? So what an active user was, was defined differently by different groups. Anyway, I was kind of shocked by all this, but I found a group in Israel that was running the front end of the security side. And so they were collecting kind of raw data on the all the, the inbound sessions. And so we extracted from that the usage of different apps. And we built a matrix of what's your retention based on how many apps you use. And what we showed was obvious correlation that the more apps you use, the better you were retained, et cetera. And there was like a tipping point. If you used more than X apps, you would start using more and more apps, right? But what we found is that the average Android user used under two Google apps a week, a week or a day or a month. Maybe, I don't remember, like something tiny. And I mean, I showed it to Sundar, he was shocked. People couldn't believe it. First of all, because they hadn't seen the data, but they couldn't believe how bad things were performing. Because again, everyone was siloed. No one looked at them as one thing. And so I said to Sundar, I said, look, if we were a gaming company, right, what would we do? We'd use each app to promote the other app, right? That's what gaming companies do. You build a network of apps and you promote each other. Let's assume for a minute that all our products, that we all work in one company, right? If we did, we would do this. So I started building the cross-platform growth team. It was the first kind of growth team at Google. And we also brought in growth discipline and theory, et cetera. But we also built all kinds of components for iOS, at the Google's iOS apps that would drive traffic between the apps and all kinds of things around analytics and about emails and notifications, all the kind of playbook of growth, but obviously at a huge scale. And that's when I saw the inner workings of Google. And after about a year and a half of this, I, I checked out. I handed the, that team off to someone else. I went back to only do ways. And I never got involved again in Google per se products or applications because 
the end of the day, corporate world is a different world than startups. It's not that we're better or they're better. And it, I don't even think this is Google. I think this would be the case for any big any, company. Exactly, exactly. It's any big company. It's the reality of big companies. The problem in the Bay is that Google, Facebook, they try to pretend they're still startups, mm. right? And it would be they do a lot better if they admit they were corporations and began managing themselves like corporations. But this idea that we have when we think small, look, the big tech companies, their competitor is the regulator. Their competitor is not the other company. Each one of them is a monopoly, right? They control an area in the, in the, of course, not a monopoly. They have market dominance, whatever the politically correct way of saying monopoly is. But basically they're monopolies. They control an area of the internet. They have learned how to suck money out of it like no other company ever again. And so the only thing that can disrupt them is the regulator. And so the fact that you spend most of your time in meetings with lawyers makes sense when you think about it from the corporate perspective. It makes no sense when you think about it from the product perspective or from the consumer perspective. And this is the problem, right? These, it's not that they're wrong in the way they had, treat things. They're right for who they are. Now, the question is, is that what you want to do? Do you want to sit in meetings and, sure. and, and with lawyers or do you want to actually go build things? And that really depends on who you are. And I think the most frustrated people are the people that are at big companies and try to get things done. That was me, right? I had this myth, like every, every founder is irrational, right? So I had this myth, I'm going to come to Google, I'm going to change Google. I'm going to prove that you can build you know, innovative products and that ways can grow and thrive within Google and that, that we can change all, all the stuff that I saw at Google that I thought it needed changing. And, you know, I banged my head against the wall for a few years. And then I realized, like everyone else, it's the nature of the beast. Like, mm -hmm. this is what corporate world is. It doesn't change. Mm -hmm. It's You can optimize it here and there. And so that caused tremendous frustrations for me at the time until I finally, you know, gave, gave up on it, gave up on trying to change it. Yeah. I think that probably would have happened for you Anywhere. Anywhere. So I wrote, when I, when I left Google and LP, where I, I wrote this post, I did not have any idea how big this post was going to go, how yeah. it was going to blow up at all. I would have edited it much better if I had known. Yeah. I would have, I just sat down and wrote it, you know, and published it. Like, I, I didn't think about it even. And it got really wide distribution, let's put it that way. But what I got a lot of feedback from people. By the way, most of the old time Googlers wrote back to me completely agreeing with me. Mm -hmm. And the people that, that hated me the most were the new Googlers who are still trying to believe that. Of course. But I think tremendous number of people from all kinds of companies got back and said basically that, that they had similar experiences everywhere from tech companies to regular corporations. You know, it's not something unique to Google in that sense. Mm -hmm. I think what's unique for tech companies though is they have, you know, most companies have a constraint of revenue and of financial returns and things like that that constrain what they can do tech companies are so profitable that they have no constraint. Yeah. So, you know, they have no market signal telling them, hey, what you're doing makes no sense because there's no revenue here. Because they got that one thing that produces all the money and there's enough money in the organization that everybody can feel they're important. Yeah, well, you could even make that argument, don't you think, for startups too? Especially, you talked about post and how you're trying to operate within constraints. Especially over the last few years, you saw a lot of startups become meaningfully disassociated from reality because they were using fundraising as the barometer of progress rather than customers. So this is 100% agree. I was a very big opponent of all the whole SPAC space. Mm -hmm. and everybody told me I'm an idiot. And, you know, I think it turned out that way. The American banking system is amazing at finding any crack where you can get a higher than normal returns and pouring so much money into it that it just blows everything up and becomes crazy, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the same thing with SPACs and all these things. The term unicorn was invented by Eileen Lee a few months after we were sold. And 
it dealt with this idea of a billion dollar company, which was the myth of a VC at the time, right? The myth was always building a, a billion dollar company. It was talking about the, an exit of a billion dollars. And it, the term got co-opted to say raising at a billion dollar valuation. And it became this obsession with founders to raise at a billion. And, and it meant that a lot of people made terrible mistakes. By the way, many of the SPAC companies could have been healthy companies mm. if they had not gone the route. Being a public company is a terrible thing as someone who ran, being a small public company, but someone who ran a small public company in, in 99, 2000, 2001, etc. It's the worst thing in the world. And founders don't, it's not an exit. Going public is a step in your journey. You're fundraising it from a different source than VCs, but it's a step. You are not, you haven't ended anything. You basically signed on for another 10 years when you go public, right? That has to be the mentality that people think. Instead of thinking, oh, now I'm going to be a billionaire. Mm -hmm. And it's just not true. And it doesn't matter what the paper says. Mm -hmm. So yes, having too much money, this is being out of step of where you are. Having too much money can kill a startup just as easily as not having money. Mm-hmm. I promise we're going to get to post, but I, the, there's something that you mentioned at Google. You were really focused on the telemetry and the metrics. While you were at Waze as the CEO or different companies, how much time are you spending as the, the leader of that organization defining what metrics actually matter, defining what it is that everyone's working towards? So I would say at Waze, one of our biggest mistakes was we had very poor analytics infrastructure, really poor. And part of that was the timing because we were mobile first and there really wasn't analytics for mobile at the time the same way. And so you had to build everything yourself. It wasn't just like an SDK you throw into your app and suddenly you see what's going on. You had to literally build every event yourself. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't a strong DNA in the company. And this is a... You know, it's a problem. We all like to, like to say data-driven, but to do it well is very hard. I felt that we hadn't done it well, and I assumed we got to Google that I could learn how it's done well. And what I found at Google also, it, that it wasn't. When, when you have a successful product, it's very easy to not look at the analytics, right? When do you look at your analytics deeply? When your product's not successful, mm-hmm. when things aren't working well, right? And that's where you really need to go deep onto your analytics. Mm-hmm. What was the metric that you were using at Waze that you think, like that you guided the company towards for a while? So first of all, I think every company needs to have its own North Star metric because every business is different. And you can't say that retention is the most important thing if your product is a one-off purchase thing. It's, it's like everything has to be unique. What we realized at the end is that our number one metric was a driven kilometers. And driven kilometers is how many kilometers a person opened the Waze app and drove with it open. We obviously measured through the GPS and we knew how fast people were going. But that kind of impacted everything. It showed how much data we were collecting from the user and how much we could improve our maps and our traffic. It showed us how much airtime we had with the user that we could show ads and, and other monetization options. We knew that the longer, the more you used Waze, the more features you started to use. There was a tipping point of, I think it was, if you use us more than four times a month, like once a week, that's kind of when the tipping point began and, and you began to use us more and more. But if you use us less, you'd stay at the same level. So everything kind of came back to these driven kilometers, driven kilometers per user, driven kilometers. Obviously we saw professional drivers have a different driving, drive differently than regular consumer drivers. So everything came back to that. And that became the metric. Last night I was Ubering in from JFK and the driver was using Waze. Good and, guy. And I started asking him, obviously in anticipation of this, a bunch of questions about Waze. And I said, do you always use it? And he said, yes. And I said, why? And he said, because I trust it. And I said, why do you trust it? 
And he said, because there's other people telling me what's going on around the system. You have a smile on your face. It still makes you happy. At first, it makes me very happy because, you know, at a startup, you always have kind of your vision, your mission, and how you want people to describe you, whatever, right? And that was exactly what our hope was to reach a point where, because, you know, Google Maps is a great product. Apple Maps today is a great product, et cetera. But that trust thing, right? Knowing the, the human aspect, the fact that there's other people out there is the one of the unique things about our app. And it translates into that trust, as you say, into that kind of emotional connection. So that was always kind of our, our hope was that people would discuss, describe us the way you just did. And the thing that I was thinking about when I was sitting in the backseat of this Uber was that the company is a still a social company, which is why Facebook was interested in it, and it's a maps company. Going back to kind of the North Star of the way that you defined what success was, was it weird organizing the company around both of those things at the same time? Like, was that, I just wonder, what was it like at that point? So it's funny, that there were two camps in the company when I joined, all the way through. One camp was driven by people who had grown up in the mobile industry. And they were thinking about navigation in the traditional sense of a navigation product. And they were like BlackBerry users or Nokia users, et cetera. And then there was the other camp, which were more the social camp, the iPhone users, the gamification, et cetera. Was unique about ways we managed to balance both. Like when we got started, our nemesis was Foursquare. Because right, we got started more or less the same time, us and Foursquare. Huh. We did similar funding rounds in the beginning, but they were the cool kids. They were on the front page of time, right? And and they were like, everyone was talking about them. And they were, and our engineers, as all engineers say, it was like, I could build this in a weekend. You know, what is this thing, this stupid check-in thing, whatever. But it was became so big that at a certain point, our kind of iPhone camp was like, maybe we get rid of the navigation and we only do all this kind of gamification stuff that we're doing around location because that's the cool thing. Right? I think what we managed to do that they didn't was move from being a cool thing to being a utility, something that you have to use every day. And then that actually gives you tangible value. And in many ways today, most people that use Waze don't really know there's a community behind it that builds the map. They don't know all that stuff. And that's success, right? They use it because it's a great product. And to me, that's the challenge of most social products and all these kind of community products, et cetera, is how do you translate it into real, tangible, everyday value for regular people who have a job and drive to work and whatever and don't have time to read TechCrunch? I would argue that that's the challenge of most technology companies is I have found many companies that are building technology for technology's sake because it's cool. And not really, as Mamoon would say, open for business. They're not really orienting it around a solution for a customer. Or a solution to a, a real problem, a real pain point. Sure. Right? However you want to describe it. But that's exactly the thing. And, and I just remember we spent months agonizing over Foursquare. I was like, how could it be that they're doing all this stuff and we're not? We're, Obviously, I'm glad we, we kept the course, you know, held the line and continued kind of, and this is, I think, one of the most important lessons. You know, when you have a certain vision for a startup, you have to execute your vision. This idea of pivoting, I think, is one of the worst inventions from Silicon Valley that's destroyed many, many companies. Everything's hard. Nothing works in real life. And so if you start pivoting when things don't work, you're just going to keep going from one place to the other. The only easy businesses in the world are someone else's business. 
right? It's always your business is very hard, but their business is so easy. And it's so easy because you don't know their business. It's just as hard or worse than yours, right? Yeah. And so being able to know this is what I want to be, stay on it. Obviously, you want to change your approaches, right? Like if something's not working, but you still want to go there. If you look at most successful companies, you go back also to ways. You go back to our first pitch deck, not much change between that and between what happened 10, 15 years later. Right? Yeah. And same thing with Facebook and same thing with Google and same thing with, with so many companies. Yes, there are features that change, a lot of things change, but the vision, the essence, the problem that you're solving has to be something that continues beyond that moment. Isn't it instructive that you were obsessed over Foursquare and they were the darlings for a while and probably half the audience doesn't even know who they are anymore? <laughs> I mean, to me it was... You know, that, it really goes back to when you're a startup, you don't have competition. Your competition is yourself. Do you're, you wish you just focused way more internally on your own on your own business? No, and no. Less? I, I think I think what we did really well is balancing these two camps. Mm -hmm. I don't think Waze could have been successful with only one of these camps. If we had built a pure navigation product, our maps were terrible. We couldn't find anything. It was shitty, right? So we used all the gamification and all the cool stuff around it to bridge the gap while we're collecting data and building a better map and building better service, right? So- the combination of the two was what's powerful. And, and this is, I think, a problem more on the VC side. VCs are expecting a very tight, concise pitch right, on things. And for most cases, they're right. You have to be super focused and narrow. Some things, though, require a bunch of things to happen together to create the effect. And that doesn't fall cleanly in the VC model. It's what, it's like a lot of the criticism of us was, well, you're trying to build maps and traffic and a consumer app. Go buy the maps. Why are you building, why are you building yourself? You know, buy the user. Like all these kinds of, like just do one slice of it. But the unique thing of Waze really is the whole thing. Waze without the community would not be Waze. So the effect happened from a bunch of these things working together. And that's, you know, it, it, it's hard to do, but I think that's what made Waze unique. If you could make one decision over again, what would you do? I would not have freaked out when Google Maps launched and went to South America instead of, stay, and I would have stayed focused in the U.S. What do you mean? When was that? So this is 2009. I was about to relocate to the Bay. and we were, Series A company? We were raising Series B. Okay. But we had no seed. So we're going to raise a Series B. And we were kind of deep in discussions, very close to a term sheet with a major U.S. venture fund. And, and everyone's question was, is Google doing this? And everybody came back and said, no, Google's not building maps, right? And maps was too complicated to build. And then they came out with their maps, which, by the way, is one of the few secrets that held in the Valley, which is amazing. And they had a great product, much better than ours. And I freaked out and began thinking, okay, what would Google do? Well, they're going to go from the US to the UK to Germany to France. This is how they follow their kind of traditional markets, blah, blah, blah. So we'll go to Latin America and try to build up a defensible moat around Latin America. And that was just a stupid mistake of mine trying to negotiate and trying to think that I can understand what's going on in their mind. I think the lesson here is you don't have competitors, right? It's just your ability to execute. And those companies that you think are competing with you, they don't even know who you are. They don't give a shit about you. You probably have more engineers than them. You're not competing with Google. You're competing with the people at Google who are working on maps. And, uh, you know, it's like a narrow thing. And they have so many other constraints. And their reason for doing things have to do with corporate issues that you have no idea about. Stay focused on your vision and your users and your product because it doesn't help all that gamification, you know, trying to figure out what someone else is doing. And you're just negotiating with yourself. But I, I did the classic mistake. I freaked out, went there, probably lost a year of time and focus, et cetera. Yeah. Okay, post. Ah, post. finally, my favorite subject. I'm sorry, it took me a while to get there. There's just a lot, there's a lot going on here. What is it? What is it? 
So Post is a social network that's focused on news. I believe we're kind of at the end of the first wave of social companies as we knew them. And going forward, there aren't going to be pure social companies. People will use social to build different things, different effects. And so there's kind of an unbundling of the social network. For me, one of my biggest uses of Twitter has always been about news, about getting, I follow people, they share articles, I read the articles. It became my newspaper. And for most people under 30 and for 60% of Twitter users, like social is the newspaper. And I believe going forward, that's the reality. Social is the newspaper, but social is not built for news. And so there are three, I think, core problems with social today that we're trying to solve at Post. One really is the fact that we all know the experience. Someone shares an article, you click on it, you go to a website, you get bombarded with paywalls and email capture forms and a million ads. It's like, oh, f*** this, you're not going to go, right? So you just don't do it. So one of the first things is we want to ingest the content into the platform so you can read the content in your feed, within the feed, without having to jump anywhere. Second is that people want you to actually subscribe to this website when you're trying to read one article. And this is, again, we think about the average age of a new subscriber in the US is 51. Right. If you grew up in a paper newspaper, it makes sense to subscribe to the New York Times and have an editor tell you what to read. My daughters are in college. They don't understand the concept. You're going to go to a website so someone else can tell you what to read? No, I'll follow people that I like. They'll share content with me and I'll read it from there. Right? This whole idea of that kind of personal relationship on, on these websites, on these subscription, is just wrong for the, the idea of social. I think it's wrong for many different reasons. And so we've built a micropayment network in our platform. And that means that you can actually unlock articles from The New Yorker or Wired or The Independent or USA Today, et cetera, like about 30 publishers that are on the platform. And you unlock it by a few cents, pay three cents, five cents, 10 cents for the article. You don't need to subscribe. And that allows you to read a diversity of different opinions. You're not locked into one platform. And frankly, only 20% of Americans subscribe to anything. So the vast majority of Americans are just, you know, the truth is paywalled and lies are free, right? They're just reading the free lies. Mm -hmm. Third thing is toxicity of these networks, right? Social media networks are built for basically their ad platforms, right? That happen to also have a social network attached to them. Mm. And so they're promoting toxicity and hatred as a feature. It keeps us engaged. You want to keep someone on the platform, show them some shit that, they, that makes them angry, they'll stay longer. And the algorithms discover that no matter what we do. And I believe that the social media networks of today are really destroying liberal democratic society as we know it. They've become really a tool for the extremes to promote ideas that I don't believe the vast majority of people believe in. Mm. I don't think the vast majority of Americans are crazy. Mm. I don't think the vast majority of Americans are anti-vaxxers or authoritarians on the other side. But the platforms make it seem that way because they elevate this craziness. And so at Post, what we're doing is we're very, very focused on, on moderation. We have a community model similar to Waze or Wikipedia that we're building out to help moderate the content. And as we like to say, we're, we're a platform for people who are not culture warriors. Mm. If, you wanna, if you're a culture warrior and you want to go fight with people, go to Twitter, go to enough platforms for you. If you want to actually read news, you want to have some discussions, you want to discover people, you want to learn, you want to have a, a civil conversations, we're the place for you. And so people like, love calling post a Twitter alternative in the sense that, yes, you can follow, you can post, you can do all the stuff that you would on a traditional platform. But I, I would call it the, a social media platform that's focused on news, that's optimized for news. When did you launch? We launched in November. You raised the seed from like Andreessen, Andreessen like yeah. you're still early, very early. Yeah, you yeah, just yeah. launched. We're a year. We raised our, our seed round a year ago, May. 
I read this, so not everything you read is true, but uh, it has to be true. I, I, it's uh, on the internet. I, it has to be true. Right, that's right. I read that there was six hundred fifty thousand people on your wait list, and of those four hundred thirty thousand people, actually created an account. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's no, it, it's been. And then we, publishers took notice because of that and then joined it, the platform. So, so the problem, I, I've been obsessing about this space of misinformation, disinformation, et cetera, for years. And so when I left Google, I actually started building some products and spending a lot of time with publishers and, and, and I self-funded it. And I was trying to figure out, I feel strongly that authoritarianism is one of our biggest threats for a liberal open society. And it's not about left or right. It's about this slide into authoritarianism. We like to look at Trump in the US, but you go to BB in Israel and you go to Brazil and you go to Philippines, you go to Poland, Hungary, all over the world, this trend of authoritarianism. It's not only because of social media, let's not you know, give that much credit to social media, but social media is a big part of it. These have become platforms that are kind of optimized for promoting the worst of us. And so when we started post, basically November is when, uh, we started in, in, in May, really got things going kind of the summer. November came around and Elon took over Twitter and the whole world kind of blew up and we said, we've got to launch something. So we took what we had, which was not much, and put it behind a wait list and just launched it. And first day, if you joined us, there was one feed that was basically whatever everyone was posting. That was it. But the point was, we spent so much time with the publishers trying to convince them to come to us. And every publisher agreed with what we're saying. The, you know, 2% of their audience converts to subscription. So they're locking out 98% of the users. They don't know how to monetize them. The subscribers are 50 plus age. They're missing the whole younger generation. Like, they all agreed, but frankly, nobody cares because they all know they're not going to be there in a year. They're going to get fired. The CEO of these companies are hired CEOs. That are, there's no founder that, that really cares about these companies anymore. And everyone just wants to do what the New York Times does, but they're not the New York Times. You know, so launching that early gave us the credibility and suddenly we had all the publishers come to us. And again, we have 30 publishers live. We've got about 100 publishers that are live, but casually, not like in a formal engagement. And we have like a long list of publishers that are coming onto the platform. I believe that the internet cannot be built on two business models, subscription or ads. That's it. It can't be. Ads make sense for the lowest common denominator when you've got hundreds of millions of views. But there's you know very few creators that ever get reached there, very few types of content. Subscription makes sense for a small slice of content that has tremendous value to it, right? Mm. Again, small percent of content. The vast majority of the content's in the middle. There's no business model for it. Mm. And when you think about buying an article for one cent, what's one cent, right? One cent, we don't, we don't even have the coins anymore for one cent, right? We don't know what that is. One cent is a $10 CPM. So when you begin thinking in advertising terms, think a 10 cent article is $100 CPM. Who gets $100 CPMs in the publishing world? Suddenly a lot of things can change and suddenly small publishers can have a business model. If your business model is only subscription, you know, you're limited with how many people will do it. But if you have good content, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to monetize that well. Mm. And the way that it works is I would go on buy credits that I can then start using towards- So the way it works is everyone listening to this call right now needs to go to post.news, mm. okay? Post, P-O-S-T dot news, N-E-W-S, right? Everyone has to do it. That's a rule. That's a mm -hmm. law. Mm -hmm. And once you're there, you're going to sign up. And when you sign up, we'll give you 50 points. Our economy is built on points similar to Twitch. We mm -hmm. borrowed kind of the model for the gaming world. We'll give you 50 points. And obviously a lot of content's free. You can post whatever you want. You can, anybody can tip anyone on the platform. There's a huge economy of tipping people. A lot of creators don't charge. They just, they just live off tips. And basically you can pay out, you use your 50 points. When you finish your 50 points, you can buy more points in different buckets of points and keep using that. What we find is that about 
60% of people who run out of points put their credit card in and purchase more points. That makes sense. 60 I thought it'd be like more about one and a half percent when we were starting, but yeah. 60%, right? So what we're seeing is the models working and we're seeing it with the, the publishers, the creators. We've have creators have taken out money already from the platform. We're ingesting newsletters into the platform now and automatically posting them out. So it's very low lift for the creator mm -hmm. and they get you know tipped and they get paid on it. But it's more about access, right? I think what Apple has shown us is that if you build something friction-free enough, yeah. People are willing to pay. And I think especially when it comes to news, people are willing to pay something. They're not willing to subscribe. But between zero and a subscription, there's a huge area. Mm -hmm. And we want to fill that area. Yeah, especially when you see an article that you're interested in on Twitter, as an example, and then you go and click on it and there's a paywall. And it's infuriating. It's a paywall. It's infuriating. And, and someone shared it with you that you want to read it, right? But you can't get there because... And I do think... Look, I, I believe that social media is a very important part of our culture now. But that doesn't mean it has to be so hateful and so toxic as it is today. It's interesting because I think back to Waze, where it was a maps company and a social company. I think about this, it's a news company and it's a social company. And actually, I think that the audience listening to it is going to have a hard time holding both of those worlds together until maybe they see it. Because exactly. I, I imagine Waze was very misunderstood for a while, just trying to understand like, what is this? Which is why there's probably two factions. I suspect you will be misunderstood for a while at, uh, no, at Post. Definitely, we see, we see the same thing. It's much easier to understand once you use the app, right? Yeah. So just go use it. I remember with Waze, first time using it, save time on traffic. I was like, oh my fucking God, I just saved time. The first time I used a food delivery app, it showed up at my door. The first time I used a feature on Spotify, not Spotify itself, but there was a feature. Aggregating all my songs was very interesting to me. Being able to access those songs from anywhere when otherwise I'd have to buy them one by one from iTunes was very, very interesting to me. They took a while for them to develop the entire catalog. What was really interesting to me was the discovery of music, the ability for them to create playlists for me. That was the feature. I wonder, in these consumer-type apps, it strikes me, you're the expert, not me, but it strikes me that there is always the aha feature, the aha moment, where you were like, man, that's great. Are you looking for that? Yeah. So uh, we are- Do you agree with that? Uh, first of all, I agree completely. At Waze, the aha moment was, there were two. One was, Waze tells you to get off the highway, you get off, you look at the highway, you see all those idiots sitting in traffic and you're driving past them and you're like, I'm a genius, they're idiots. <laughs> the second aspect, which is the same, is that you, Waze tells you to get off the highway, you say, oh, f*** it, Waze are idiots. You keep going, you get stopped, you're the idiot on the highway and you watch all these people going below you on the side street, right? Those are the two cases. In our case, and by the way, we're just beginning to, we're very close, we haven't launched our, our machine learning infrastructure and our recommendation engine and all that, which is, is missing. But when we imagine what the experience is going to be like, the aha moment at post, is you come in, you've got this feed, and the feed slowly learns kind of who you are, and every article that comes by is something you actually want to read. And the aha moment is you come in, Three articles, you read them, you walk away smarter. You didn't spend five hours doom scrolling. You're not fighting with anyone. You suddenly actually posted a comment and the journalist who wrote the article responds to you. You shared it and you got like, like bringing all those good sides of social 
together without the craziness. But really being able to bring the right article to you, read it in your feed and go. Like friction is our number one enemy here. And what we've seen is that if we can remove the friction, people are willing, people aren't afraid to pay for things. But no one is going to give you their email address for another article, right? Nobody wants to sign up. Nobody wants to pull out their, to do anything but the friction, if we can remove friction and give you the right articles at the right time so you feel smarter when you walk away, to us, that's the aha moment. Very well said. I appreciate you doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I could go for hours. I really do. I always conclude these things the same way. The first is, are you hiring? Always. What are you hiring for? Is there any no, key so we're roles? Specific, yeah, yeah. The, we're specifically looking for kind of a lead IC slash potential leader of our ML team, which we don't have a team yet, of course. So really an expert ML person in the startup space. And this is a problem because, you know, startups are about 80-20 and they're about cutting corners and you don't have enough resources for anything. You got to move fast. And a lot of the ML data scientists and ML engineers, ML data scientists, you know, that the whole space is people who are used to having large experimentation infrastructures built in place and really optimizing for the top 99%, you know, and things like that. And we need someone that's experienced in building from scratch building from scratch, running for scratch, rolling out models quickly when they're not perfect and they're far from being perfect, but they're a little better than what you have now and make them better and better and better. So that kind of, we need that DNA of a person with deep ML AI chops built in. It's interesting, we're, we're starting to use ChatGPT a lot, analysis of text, because we've discovered that they do just so much, complete, so much a better job than any of the NLP platforms we've kind of looked at. Right. So again, these are kind of the areas that we're looking for someone who can understand the space, but can also make quick decisions and is always focused on being a little bit better than being perfect. Well said. Last one. When you hear the word grit, what do you think of? Who do you think of? I'll let you take it where you will. I take it to back to the military and special forces teams. The number one thing that the SEALs look for or that the Green Berets look for or any of the SAS, et cetera, is grit. It's not about being a huge person and being stronger than anyone. And it's about never giving up. And if you never give up, you can achieve anything because you've never given up, right? You'll either die or you'll achieve it. And that, that to me is grit. No, I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than a hundred episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production, and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.